There are two flags among the thousands of items at the Museum of Sports and Tourism in Warsaw, which were created at prisoner of war camps in Germany during World War II. Both are Olympic flags created under horrible yet very different circumstances, representing the Olympic Games held behind Nazi barbed wire. Both are symbols of a sporting life that kept hope alive for thousands of men who for a brief time could celebrate life instead of lamenting its loss. Welcome to the Games of 1940 and 1944. I didn't even know there were games in 1940 and 1944 until very, very recently. Yeah, well, I did know that Tokyo had been awarded in 1940, which I don't know. Was that always going to be a bad omen 80 years later? yeah, I, I was when I was reading up about the different uh, countries that were awarded games and then them being cancelled. I mean, there does seem to be a pattern. Rome always seems to get cancelled. I know we've had two, but like it always seems to get cancelled. Tokyo just always seems like you know we want to have a contingency plan or two in place. And it's the the forty year curse, which was mentioned in Tokyo quite a lot last year as well, because there was nineteen forty which was cancelled 1980 in Moscow with the boycotts and now 2020 postponed for a year, maybe postponed forever. Uh, still not yet known at the time of recording. <laughs> Similar to last time. Do you think it's like a curse of Pierre de Coubertin? Do you think he's, do you think he's behind this? Uh, please uh, do tell me why. Well, no, I'm just, I'm just wondering. Cause like, I mean, he, he could definitely hold a grudge. And something that I hadn't realised, even though we talked about him dying a year after seeing all the naked women in Berlin, do you know they cut out his heart? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, it's in Olympia. So I like, I, I don't know, like, should we disinter it? And like, I don't know what we should do, but but we should do something. I was thinking, right. So I was thinking, if I had been Pierre de Coubertin, would I have liked to have had my heart buried in Olympia? I mean, it makes sense. I probably would have had my heart buried there, but I would have liked for like my body to be embalmed and then brought to every Olympic uh, city oh. to like lie in state. So like it should be, so you'd run, <laughs> you'd run in with the Olympic flame and then also the body appeared at Coubertin. I like maintenance, I think is a big issue there, Ruth. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I mean, unless he, you know, we took on some kind of uh, mummification route with Pierre. Yeah. Well, no. So, I mean, we're kind of moving into a different podcast now, but yeah. uh, both you and I studied archaeology and we know there's a lot of different ways to mummify a body. So, you know, th- there are ways we could salt him up. Uh, I think that would have only taken like about nine months. Then we- you would have had a nice salty Pierre de Coubertin. Anyway, Chris, 1940. <laughs> I reckon cremation would be the way forward. And then he could be part of the torch itself. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, anyway the, 19, 19... <laughs> the 1940 case, that nice little... Can you give us a bit of a, a background into why... I think we all know why these games didn't take place in 1940 and 44, but <laughs> where they were going to take place and, and what in the end uh, brought an end to their attempts to host. I mean, if the listeners don't know what brought an end to it, maybe Wikipedia would be your friend here. Uh, But, so Tokyo had bid for the 1940 Games and they were up against Helsinki and Rome. Um, They put a huge amount of money into their bid. 
and it was eventually won because it was quite a tough battle towards the end. It was won after their IOC delegate, Sugimura Yotoro, where was sent to Rome to plead with Mussolini. And uh, considered by none a very fair man, Mussolini agreed, um, as long as uh, the Japanese would support Italy for the 1944 bit. Something that also looks like it kind of secured the win, was Japan's promise to subsidise other nations' participations in the event with up to $290,000 per team, which is a nice little incentive. Bit bribey. Look, you know, it was the 1930s and uh, Japan, you know, were doing what they needed to do to get the world on their side. They did have a big construction plan in place. Most of the stuff actually wasn't built by the time it got stripped from them. They did build a 628 room luxury hotel, which was one of the biggest in the region at the time. And, uh, but as I said, most of their constructions didn't go ahead, including a golf course. And look, we have opinions, some of us more than others, on golf at the Olympics. And I do kind of wonder, like, is golf the curse? I mean, the last time we, that we brought back, we brought back golf for 2016 and look what's happened to the world. So I, I don't know, Chris. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we can we can blame that. <laughs> we can blame golf for the, the cancellation of the 1940 uh, Olympics. Uh, I think more the Japanese invasion of China. <sighs> Fine. You always mention Fine. Manchuria. <laughs> <laughs> Before the games themselves were cancelled, Japan had actually given up the right to host, right? Because it was known uh, in advance after the uh, always known as the rape of Nanking or Nanjing uh, where there was 300,000 civilian deaths there was calls the boycott from the UK and uh, the USA and some of the Scandinavian countries they threatened to boycott it due to the war and basically the reason why some of the the stadiums you mentioned weren't being built is because they were well, they had other things to, yeah. to focus their construction on, uh, the Japanese. So it was in 1938 that they decided to actually cancel the competition uh, completely in July 1938, uh, citing the need to conserve their resources in wartime. But the IOC then reassigned the 1940 games to Helsinki. Mm-hmm. And they beat Detroit, who surprisingly were interested in hosting as well. But due to World War II and the issues Helsinki and Finland had with the Soviet Union invading the country. Oh, that little uh, thing. There was <laughs> that, that little thing. They were forced to cancel the event as well just a few months beforehand. So it was only in April 1940 when the Soviet Union invaded and the Finns, who had spent about 10 million on the game. So they were really committed to making it happen, then had to give it up. You mentioned Detroit there. Just bringing just bring this little modern twist here. Did you hear that Florida offered to host <laughs> <laughs> this year's Olympics? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Would you be up for it, Chris? No, thank you. I'm good. Um, one, of, one of the things about the, you know, the Japanese public, both in 1940 and now, seem very kind of like blasé about whether the games go ahead or not as in they're kind of okay with them being cancelled there's there doesn't seem to be a massive uproar of like oh we've spent you know billions and now you're gonna cancel they're just kind of like oh yeah it's gonna get cancelled grant yeah I, I always i'm always interested in those polls though you know japan's a very big country ruth with a lot of people well we'll mention the polish later chris <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you said um, 
they did have other things to be worried about, but they did have at one stage 15,000 Japanese young people involved in the voluntary Olympic construction programs. And they did, uh, they, they reignited the night, in 1942, the Japanese Amateur Athletic Association, and they did have um, all Japan games throughout the war uh, to use all, all of these things. But you mentioned Finland. They essentially had less than two years to plan this. And they had to begin massive construction uh, projects. Um, the athletes were going to be housed in private homes with larger groups and schools and even tents. And they were going to see the return of ocean liners to serve as the hotels. They'd built a stadium in 1934, which had a capacity of 30,000. Um, but they built it with the contingency plan of Olympic gaps. So they were able to double the stadium's capacity by filling up all the gaps. So they had a 60,000 person stadium for the event. So even though, as I said, they only had less than two years to prepare, Helsinki did manage to be pretty well sorted to welcoming 60,000 visitors. And they had almost all their construction completed um, apart from a swimming pool. But then, Chris, what happened? The Soviets, Ruth. Yeah, the Soviets. And, um, you know, the Finns, they were absolutely crushed. I mean, they were going to get more crushed, as was the rest of the world. It wasn't just a cancellation of sporting events that dominated the 40s. But the Finnish Olympic Committee, they said, we Finland thought that even in time of war, it was important to keep alive the Olympic idea, an idea that would unite all the nations of the world in a spirit of peace and brotherhood. We felt that it was our duty to arrange the games at the very time when their significance as a symbol of goodwill among the nations was greater than ever. Shortly after having been entrusted with the games, we defined their aim to be a feast which would awaken in all individuals and nations a desire for mutual understanding and hold before the eyes of a world infected with discord and suspicion the ideal of peace. But when less than a year remained before the games... Bolshevik Russia attacked our peaceful people. She disclosed her intentions by making air raids on the unfortified Olympic city, killing women and children with bombs and machine guns. We beseech you, our fellow athletes and sportsmen in all parts of the world, to think of Finland at this moment, which has been attacked without the slightest justification by a great power pursuing its Bolshevik policy. The crazy thing about all of this and back and forth between Tokyo and the IOC and Helsinki and then all of it being cancelled in you know the period between 1937 and 1940 for me is that in 1939 they were still planning ahead to 1944 and figuring out who to give it to and i think that is quite telling of also nowadays where a problem in one part of the world is kind of completely ignored and you know it's all systems go when it comes to uh, what's closer to home and I think that was very much the case in London when they were bidding for the 1944 games. I'm pretty sure in June 1939, that war was very much looming and uh, it was an issue uh, that was seeming, I don't know if it was completely ignored or they just thought, ah, by 1944, everything will be okay as there was quite a few bids coming in because London won in the end, beating Belgrade, Lausanne and Detroit again. Yeah, it was just a few months after they were actually given the games, finally, that uh, three months, in fact, that Hitler invaded Poland and Great Britain and France then declared war on Germany. As the Finnish said, there was this feeling that 
the games should go ahead simply because the Olympics are meant to be apolitical. Of course, they never have been apolitical. You know, we've seen that time and time again. They're always political. This this idea that uh, we can have sport completely free of politics has never been achieved. But there was this sense, and, and we talked about 1936 and these friendships happening between different nations under the shadow of Hitler's Germany. So that, that brotherhood does occur, as the Finns say, among sport. And we did actually see examples of sport bringing people together in really horrific circumstances during the war. It did. And that's, I think, got to be the thing we should focus on in this podcast as we look at the games that did take place in 1940 and 1944. And as I said at the beginning, I really had no idea that these games took place uh, until we started looking into this. I wasn't sure whether we could have uh, a podcast on this period, much actual uh, Olympic action to look into. And uh, I think we should start with the uh, the 1940 Underground Olympic Games. Yeah, this this was um, a prisoner of war camp near Nuremberg, wasn't it? It was in yeah. uh, prisoner of war camp number 13A in Langwasser near Nuremberg. They na- they named it um, a special Olympics and a Polish p- prisoner created an Olympic flag using a t-shirt and crayons. And they had participants from Belgium, France, Britain, Norway, Poland and the Netherlands. And they made uh, flags for each of these nations too. And one of the prisoners, Theodore Niewiadomski, was able to hide a number of souvenirs uh, of these games, which you've mentioned uh, have ended up in a Warsaw Museum. And he was able to hide these for the duration of his imprisonment, the remainder of his imprisonment. And these included a poster, um, some medals which had been made out of paper, poetry and of course the flag itself and um, a prisoner from each Poland, France and Britain took an oath on the makeshift flag. Do you know what the oath was? Nope. In the name of all the sportsmen whose stadiums are fenced with barbed wire, let these Jeux Olympiques de Pronier de Guerre be a symbol of the 12th Olympic Games. I declare that the International Prisoner of War Olympic Games of the year 1940 in Stala 13A of the suburbs of Nuremberg Langwasser are open. And now these happen all underground. Like the this was a secret Olympic Games that took place. Oh, was it? Yes. Unlike in 1944, ah, which was okay. <laughs> out in the open, this these all happened basically underground. This was a, a secret Olympic Games that took place. They were not allowed to do it, which is why all of the mementos as well, such as the, the flag and the, uh, the paper medals uh, and the, the miniature poster were all hidden away. And there was one German soldier who did know about it. His name was Roger Virion, who's father was French, his mother was Polish, and Virion was in love with the Polish javelin thrower who won a bronze medal at the 1936 Olympics, Maria Kwasniewski. He kept her photograph with him, and maybe that's why he helped to organize the competitions in the camp dungeons and help keep them secret. Ah, okay. That's interesting. Do we know what sports were contested? We do know, according to Judith Theodore Neviadomsky's book he wrote uh, called There Was My Front, that the events included volleyball and then five more personal disciplines. Uh, and each of them had one representative from different countries to participate. So there was cycling, 
as well. And to determine the winner of that, Virion attached an old bicycle to two stools and installed a counter that responded to the pedal movement. So you could see who managed to cycle the most. And the best in that race was one of the captives from Belgium. There was a shot putt, <laughs> which was uh, originally a six kilogram cobblestone, which Virion passed from one hut to another. And the victor in that was a Frenchman who threw it 11 meters. Then there was an archery competition, which uh, was not carried out outdoors, but indoors. Here, the winner was a Senegalese prisoner with Polish roots. Uh, to win the long jump, it was necessary to overcome a small ditch with water located on the camp. And a Norwegian won that one. While all of the other uh, disciplines were kept secret, the volleyball competition had to be cancelled because a German guard noticed how the Belgians and the Dutch were throwing the ball over the clothesline and then uh, dispersed the athletes, so to speak. Uh, the last uh, event was a race called the Camp Frog, where the participants had to overcome 50 meters by jumping in a squat. And that was a com common way of punishing the prisoners in the camps. And the winner of that was uh, Nevyadomsky, who was well-practiced at this uh, due to his indiscipline while he was in the camp. So yeah, there are some very, very interesting uh, events. I bet there was no golf, so well done. Boxing. Would there have been a boxing? I think there could have been a boxing. It could have been, but boxing might not have been such a good idea. Uh, as, as again, we'll talk about it when we in a little bit later about 1944. Chess, perhaps. Again, something else mm. you can do in, in close quarters. Arm wrestling. Ah, uh, yes. Tom Moore. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, a film made about this, uh, a Polish film called Olympiada 40, uh, which was about the prisoner of war games and based on Theodor Niewodomski's story. And that was released in 1980. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it, no. I didn't think I could sit through a Polish film without English subtitles, to be honest. Um, <laughs> particularly on this topic, I have a feeling that I need, I need to see some subtitles. I did look for it, I'll be honest, okay. and could only find... Uh, find it with Polish subtitles. So, yeah, sorry about that. You need to brush up your Polish, Chris. Yeah, that's true. Be more committed to the pod. Anyway, 1944. Let's speed ahead mm. because you're saying this was an official, well, not an official, but it, it was a one that didn't have to be uh, competed in secret. Yes, and, and for this one, we go to the Voldenberg Offlag, which is an officer prisoner of war camp that was completed in 1942, the camp itself, and it turned into like a miniature town with a population of 7,000 people. It had its own internal post service, and unlike uh, prisoners in many other Nazi camps, the Polish officers that were held in Voldenberg were uh, permitted to exercise they, they played soccer, they uh, studied, and they attended plays as well, all within this miniature prisoner of war town that was built. So they had a deal of normality there, and they decided that they wanted to celebrate the Olympics that were due to take place in 1944. Uh, do you know what the connection was, the particular connection was between the prisoners of war here and the Olympics. No. Ah, well, that I can tell you. The guy who was managing the whole games in 
in this prisoner of war camp was Lieutenant Antoni Grzesic. Antoni Grzesic. Okay. Grzesic. Yeah, Grzesic. I'll go for that. Uh, Lieutenant Antoni Grzesic. He was a commander for the company in which Janusz. Oh, God. <laughs> in which Janusz Kuzjozinski was in and Janusz Kuzjozinski won a gold medal in the 10,000 meters in LA 1932. Who can forget? Who could forget that? So he was a hero uh, for Polish athletes. He fought in the Battle of Warsaw in 1939. He was arrested by the Gestapo in the following year and ended up being executed three months later in the Palmyra massacre near Warsaw. They were connected in that sense, uh, at least Lieutenant Antoni Grzesic, and he wanted to organize these games inspired by that athlete and to, to celebrate the games that were not taking place. The sporting program was quite extensive. I read in that article that you mentioned that um, there were 464 competitions and 369 participants. <laughs> yes, that's the kind of games I like. Every athlete playing yeah, pretty much you know in or competing like, in every competition. We saw in the first a few Olympics, you know, it was spread over six or nine months. They got this done very efficiently, the 23rd of July to 13th of August. You know, they just, they had, they had their schedule and they just banged it out. Exactly. Well, look, they didn't have anything else to do. No. <laughs> fair. <laughs> fair. <laughs> um, handball was here. It was. Yes. Handball was there. Football volleyball, basketball tournaments as well, athletic competitions as you predicted in 1940, uh, boxing as well, and the chess tournaments. Do you know why I was a bit hesitant when you mentioned boxing in 1940? <laughs> I have an idea, Chris, but why don't you tell us? <laughs> <laughs> well, because the boxing tournament in 1944 was not actually com uh, completed. Yeah. The category proved to be a bit too exhausting and dangerous for people living in prisoner camp conditions, which is very understandable. And after the uh, the first few bouts, there were many competitors who were withdrawing from the tournament because of acute injuries and bone fractures. So 31 of the 60 planned bouts actually took place. Yeah, so this is the thing you said, like, after a few. No, after more than half, this is how long it took. Maybe, like, bout number 29 and 31 were particularly horrific. Um, but it did take them quite a while to say, ah, do you know what? This is getting a bit dodgy. Yeah, there were a few other potentially dodgy sports which were not allowed. Um, although the uh, Nazis were quite accommodating in terms of allowing these Olympic Games to take place, they did not allow the events of fencing, archery, javelin or pole vault. Can you imagine why? Yeah, I can. And I, I, I'm hesitant to say this, but I get where the Nazis were coming from <laughs> um, <laughs> on this particular issue, <laughs> just from a crowd control perspective. Uh, from no other perspective, but from a crowd control perspective, I, I get where they're coming from. So some serious temptation to impale their captors uh, yeah. may have taken over. Fairly, in the, fairly. In the heat of sporting battle. Yeah, yeah. Any dressage? No, I don't think so. Was there? Were there no, horses? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's just, no. well, it's just, it just uh, I mean, it, one of the reasons why I'm sure this was able to be a success was because especially between these interwar periods, a lot of athletes 
were trained soldiers. You know, a lot of officers in particular um, would have gone off to Olympic Games. And we saw with the dressage and the equestrianism, almost all the the, uh, participants would have been soldiered classes. True. But I imagine there were no prancy horses in a prisoner of war camp. Yeah, there were also art, painting, sculpture and music contests organized there in Waldenburg. So yeah, very like yeah, thorough uh, competition, I would say, as you said, with more events, more competitions than there were participants. And overall, it seemed to be incredibly well organized by Lieutenant Antoni Grzyzyk. They had... A colorful Olympic program that was printed, which featured a crowned athlete on the cover. They uh, listed all of the events and the names of the competitions. There were tickets issued for spectators to, also spectators, the fellow prisoners of war, to sit in the grandstand seats. And they even printed a commemorative stamp depicting a runner breaking through the finish line tape. Nice. They had an Olympic flag uh, of spare bed sheets and... Even the German officers were caught up in the whole uh, contagious sporting spirit and saluted the flag as well in their admiration for the Olympic Games themselves. So on July 23rd, 1944, uh, prisoners gathered in a field to stage the opening ceremony. Uh, And then former prisoner Arkady Verzhinsky told NBC in a feature that was done uh, for the 2004 Olympic Games that the excitement in the entire camp was unbelievable. All of us were there, some 6,000 men. We were all there together. This was a great moment. And then the Olympic flag went up. The only one in the world just in this spot. But that wasn't the only ceremony, was it? There were more events too, weren't there? There were, because almost simultaneously in another prisoner of war camp in Grossborn with 3,000 people in it, they were holding their own ceremony. Uh, They had medals made of cardboard, which suggested that there were competitions as well. Uh, That was also an off-lag site, an officer prisoner of war site. And winners received medals made of cardboard. So it seems that uh, also in Grossborn, there were some competitions held, maybe not as well documented. The IOC themselves would hold a tiny ceremony in the summer of 1944 as well which was in neutral Switzerland, and reminding the world that the spirit of peaceful international athletic competition still flickered, but a warring world took little notice. I wonder if they knew that there were two, or at least one, games taking place in Germany at the time. It is, it, it is very, again, you know, <laughs> you use phrases like it's very sad. I mean, it wasn't the worst thing that happened, but for the IOC, it was their half-century um, 1944, they would have liked to have had a big affair for it. But um, yeah. humans got in the way. I'm humans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this seems very, I wouldn't say idyllic, but it, it seems like uh, having these games in a prisoner of war camp and, and the, these people were seem to be treated quite well, maybe doesn't shed the light that it should on just how horrible the, the conditions were. Yeah. I think it's quite telling that the games that we're, we're all talking about were all officer yeah. camps. You know, we the, the, there may have been something else going on in the other prisoner of war camps, 
But yeah, that that it, it, it did happen in the officers' camps, and yeah. of course we can't. You know, this this is ne- this was never going to be a laugh a minute podcast no. uh, episode. But we do also have to mention that a lot of Olympians and people who had the potential to be Olympians died in, during the Holocaust in concentration camps. The uh, whole of Jewish athletes lists at least 30 Olympians who were murdered by the Nazis, which of course is only a very small number out of the millions who were killed. Um, So it's, it's impossible not to mention that, you know, when we we do, we're we're kind of taking a, we're looking at the best bits of during the war, but it, it does come within the context of, absolute destruction across the world yeah and even a few months after these games in Waldenburg, most of these people among the 6,000 uh, would be dead because uh, in january 1945 as the soviet troops were closing in on Waldenburg, the nazis forced all of these prisoners to march hundreds of miles through the most brutal winter conditions to resettle in another camp and when they were finally liberated in april 1945 there were only 300 of the 6,000 Waldenberg prisoners survived, uh, including Lieutenant Antoni Grzezik, who then uh, donated that flag to the museum in Warsaw afterwards. So, yeah, from 6,000 who less than a year earlier had been enjoying these makeshift Olympic Games, only, what is it, 5% of them were left alive yeah. uh, less than a year later. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the uh, former gymnastic uh, gold medalists for the Netherlands, Jude Simmons. She, so she won gold in nineteen twenty eight, and actually, nearly half of the women's gymnastic teams team from that year, uh, from the Dutch team, uh, was Jewish. And herself and her husband had an orphanage um, in Utrecht, and. On March 3rd, 1943, she refused to leave um, the orphans. They were all deported uh, to a death camp where herself, her family and dozens of children from the orphanage were gassed. You know, these are just names that we know there were there were people who never had the opportunity to reach their potential either. And we should be remembering them as well. And that's why I think it's important that we did this episode, even though uh, it's very not in keeping with the tone of no. uh, the, the podcast this, for the most part. It's a very different uh, episode, <laughs> but yeah, we can't just pretend it, it didn't happen if we're documenting all of our Olympics. Uh, because they were indeed two Olympiads, after all. They they do count in the record books as uh, the 12th and 13th Olympiad. So... I guess all we can do now is look forward to when there's actual more more sports to look at, which would be done in 1948 and the austerity games. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to kind of put a conclusion on this because, as we said, this has been a very different shift of tone. It's just a short, a short little interlude between our normal podcasts because it was important to do. Um, we do go to London next and like i'm just gonna say we have a very special guest next to lymphopod now if that doesn't happen um i'm gonna have to get like an emergency <laughs> other person but no i think i think i can say now we're we have a very special guest in our next lymphopods 
And I'll give a hint, which is that 1948, Chris, it was the last time Ireland had a diver competing in the Olympics. Until what year? Until 2016. 2016. Very interesting. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. Bit of a, you know, just a little hint to the fans. I hope it comes through now. And if that doesn't, if that doesn't transpire, yeah, <laughs> we're gonna have to, yeah, pretend that this episode didn't take place. If it does, it doesn't transpire. We just call out the potential guest who didn't come on. So, <laughs> okay, yeah, fair. <laughs> or we could we can uh, just get somebody to um, pretend. Well. Exciting times. We'll find out whether we have a real guest or a pretend guest or no guest at all in 1948 and the next Olympic pod in London. 